Hosea 11 through 13 this morning. We're adding a chapter at a time as we make our way and steam toward the end here. We did 9 and 10 last week and see you got home and you survived. And I didn't preach for three hours. So your faith is much appreciated today as we endeavor in three chapters. Hosea chapter 11 verses or I'm sorry, not verses, but Hosea 11 through 13, I want to just simply read as we work our way through the text and uh, garner what we can uh, in a survey fashion of these three chapters um, to help us understand the theme and the point of the book as we draw it to a close next Sunday being the final sermon in the series, chapter 14. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we begin this morning. Father, we're here because of your grace. We're here because your mercies were new again this morning when we awoke. Father, the only way we can explain why we're here is by your grace. Father, I pray this morning that we would be humbled by that grace, that we would be humbled by that consistent, faithful, redeeming love. Father, that the own sinfulness of our heart would be revealed and that it would be covered and conquered by the overwhelming love of God for sinners, for your chosen people. Father, may we see that to be your glorious character. May we worship you because of it. May we live in a way, Father, that is according to it this week. And Father, that we would see that everything in our life that happens, happens because of who you are. God, you are certainly worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise this morning. Father, open the eyes of our heart, our darkened eyes. Father, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's body and his blood and communion. Father, that you would remove sin. That even as we are hearing, Father we would also be confessing that we would be finding Christ faithful to his promise in 1 John chapter 1, that if we're faithful to confess our sins, you are certainly faithful and just and forgive our sins. And so, Father, we ask that you would work in our heart in these ways, exalting your Son. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Hosea chapter 11 begins this way. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king because they refused to return to me. On June 24, 2010, at 4.48 p.m. English time, American tennis player John Isner finally ended what would become the longest tennis match in the history of Wimbledon. The total time of that match was 11 hours and 5 minutes, spanning 183 games. The final set of that match itself lasted 8 hours and 11 minutes. 
It was a back and forth match in which neither side seemed to be gaining any type of advantage. Volley after volley, point after point, game after game. The monotony seemed to continue so much so that no doubt those watching at the end of that game were probably watching more out of a sense of being part of history than really caring who won the game. In other words, the actual game became lost in the monotony of such a drawn-out tennis match. As we have worked our way through Hosea, it would be easy to get lost in the seeming monotony and repetition of sin, judgment, redemption, repeated over and over so many times. And I hope that that will not be true of you, that when you look back, you won't say, you know, I just got lost and it didn't mean anything because it seems so cyclical. And like that tennis match, we believe that somehow at some point, surely there has to be a point, a defining point where it will all end and a clear winner declared. Yet so many times as you read through the book of Hosea, you read and you say, there is no resolution in sight. This seems to go on ad nauseum without hope of an ending. But this morning in chapters 11 through 13, I want to help you understand the prophet Hosea beginning to bring his book to a close, bring his sermon to a close, so that we see a synthesizing of everything that he has been teaching. A game, as it were, like the game at Wimbledon that day, drawing to its final conclusion. Though we may have been lost in the back and forth of judgment and redemption, we can find here this morning the end game. The end game is this, that it is about God. It's not about a God who loves. It is about a God who is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And this match in Hosea's writing and your match against sin will someday end. But it won't end because of you. And it won't end because of your efforts. Indeed, the the, the ending point, the critical finale of Hosea's book is that God redeems His people not because of who they were, not because of what they had done, but because of who He is. That's the end game. God is a God of redemption. And so the title of the message this morning is Because of Who He Is, Salvation for the Sake of His Name. God saves because God is salvation. And God is salvation so that He might be ultimately and magnificently glorified with everything about the game of our life. If the reality, brothers and sisters, this morning of God and who He is, is not the centerpiece of historical narrative, if God in His redeeming works is not the center point of Hosea's sermons, then nothing else does make sense. You know, we find so many people, don't we, as we journey through life, we encounter people and they're looking for the meaning of life. And our answer to them very lovingly should be, unless you understand 
God as the centerpiece of history and his redeeming work as the point of history, you won't ever find meaning to life. God is who he said he is. He is the faithful God of redemption. Promised from him and promised for him. And so we begin to see this point crystallized in survey fashion in chapters 11 through 13. And so I ask you to, did I do that? Thunder? Lightning? We do that as we see, first of all, this morning, I invite you to look at the text. Love that had been spurned. He says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. I called him my son, even while he was in bondage, even while he was in the idolatry of Egypt. I called him my son. I created again, if you will, something out of nothing. There seemed to be no hope in Egypt, and yet God brings them out. They are his familial love, his sons. But notice verse 2. He immediately transitions into the period of time that Hosea finds himself. The more they call them, who's the they? The they is the prophets. The more they proclaim God to the people, the more the people went away from them. Rebellion. The more they preached, the more rebellious the people became. The more they showed the character of God, the more the people rejected the character of God. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. This is not a mere, oops, I slipped. This is a habitual, generational problem in Egypt. They refused to hear the voice of God. So what? We're all a little rebellious. And that's true. But in light of what God has just said in verse 1, that ought to be shocking to us. And we ought to be asking the question, how is it that His people stray when He has loved them, when He has created them, when He has called them my son? How is it that we can rebel more and more the more we learn about God, the more we reject God when God has loved us? There'll be another corollary to this statement later. And it comes in the blessing that Israel so often received and yet turned away from. The context of Israel's sin. Listen, listen, please. The context of Israel's sin was divine blessing. Israel did not sin in trials. Israel sinned in the midst of divine blessing. The longer the prophets called them to God, the further they strayed. They strayed in the context of God's divine, covenantal, faithful love. Look at verse 7. 
God says this, so my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high. Again, the prophets preaching, none at all exalts him. It speaks of their predetermined bent that in spite of everything God had blessed them with and done for them, their own predetermined natural bent was to pursue the sin and darkness of their own hearts and not to follow God. That's what they wanted to do. God freed them from bondage and they determined in their heart to follow other gods. It makes no sense. And yet, this is the natural state of you and me. Every one of us are born in a darkened state so that we cannot pursue God. Aren't you thankful then that God pursues us? Because we cannot pursue God. Look at Paul's statement. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Paul writing here speaks of our sinful condition. And he quotes in verse 10, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. I like Paul's emphatic language. None, none, all. Paul is so sweeping in his theology. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to, sh uh, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We identify with these people. Born sinners, wretched, completely depraved. The word in Hosea chapter 11, verse 7, this word bent in the Hebrew literally means they are hung out, hooked, ensnared on the intent to backslide or apostatize. They are intent on falling away. That is what their hearts desired. And so they followed their hearts in overwhelming, pervasive sin. Their heart was already there and they gave into it. By the way, the worst counsel you can ever give somebody, especially an unbeliever, is this. Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. That is one of the most damaging things you could ever do to somebody. Follow your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yeah, go follow that. That's what you say to somebody you don't like. Follow your heart. I want to see you injured. Oh, the heart is so, so wicked and so depraved in its natural state. And this is where Israel found themselves, and to make matters worse, the people refused to even worship God. 
you read the end of verse 7, none at all exalts him. It's reminiscent of Psalm 46, verse 10. See, striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. That's not good news when you're saying, I refuse to worship you, and God looks at you and says, ah, I will be worshipped. I will be honored. I will be lifted up. Isaiah 33, 10, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. God's idea of his own worthy exaltation is not exaltation with other things, but exaltation over everything. So how does God want to be worshipped? God wants to be worshipped to the exclusion of everything else. God is not content to say, you know, I'll I'll be worshipped along with this or according to your idea about this. No, God's idea of his own worthy, and when I say worthy, he is worth it. God deserves this. To be exalted over everything. You know, we, we're skilled at talking like this, aren't we? We're good at talking about worship. We're good at talking about the supremacy of God over all things. We are skilled in Christianese, if you will. But the reality is this, brothers and sisters, unless we understand also our propensity to sin, our idolatry often reveals itself by the lack of our exaltation of God over everything. Every trial, every need, most importantly, over every blessing, God, you're about. Remember I said that the context of Israel's apostasy was their blessing. Can I tell you something? And I know you'll find this to be true as you observe human nature. When we're in a crisis, how tempted are we to exalt God over everything? We just do it naturally, right? We run into a problem. We run into a crisis. And oh, we're quick to fall before God and declare ourselves there for the purpose of worship and exalting God is mightier than the trial. And we don't even have to try. We just do that by nature, right? The problem comes when we're blessed. That's when Israel's problem came. When Israel found themselves in trial, they were quick to exalt God over everything and repent and return. But when Israel found themselves in a place of blessing, Israel inevitably apostatized. Because the blessing became greater than God. Brothers and sisters, let us be careful that God is sovereign and God is lifted up and God is exalted over our blessings as much as He is our trials. That we say in our blessings, God, you own this like you own the trial. God, you're greater than the blessing just like you're greater than my trial. Israel failed to do this. Blessings are an occasion to exalt God as more precious than anything we have been blessed with. How about our health? Is God better than our health? What about our material blessings? Is God greater than that? 
Oh, it's easy to say yes when they're all taken away. And you don't have anything but God. But what about in the midst of blessing? Can we say, God, you're greater than this? You're greater than this. And if this all goes away, nothing changes. You're greater. What about our freedom? Is God greater than our freedom? If if tomorrow our freedom as a nation ceased, could we still look at God and say, God, you're greater than anything we've ever had? God will continue to exalt you. God will worship you now. As much as we do in the day of trial, Israel failed to do this. They had been freed. They had been blessed. And when they did, they began to exalt those things over But it's not only that they continue to turn away from God, but look at the blasphemies that they begin to commit in verse 12. They begin to say this in verse 12. God does. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Now we talked about this at Sunday school at 10 o'clock. What does it mean to be faithful? To be faithful means to be what? True. And here is a God whose name is true, whose name is faithful. And in that God, these people live like this. They surround him with lies. Lies to God. Can I say this? More frightening. Lies about God. They not only lied to God about their condition. God, you know, yeah, we're, we're still doing the Yahweh thing over here. We're doing the little Baal thing, but we're doing the Yahweh thing too. Lies. You either, you either worship Yahweh or you don't worship him at all. There's no middle ground. Quit lying about your condition. You're idolatrous. But not only that, but they lied about God. They committed the ultimate act of blasphemy. Calling themselves by his name and yet living in ways that are contrary. Saying that he has permitted things that he never permitted. That's blasphemy. To speak of God what God has not himself spoken. They surround God with lies. God will not Suffer his name to be reproached, and all who do will pay. Exodus 27, God commands both the keeping of his name and the punishment of those who would violate it. In fact, we find one of the stricter judgments in the Ten Commandments given attached to the name of God. We find that the judgment on Israel in this case is not merely judgment, but faithfulness to his own character. In other words, God was not just judging them in a vacuum. God was judging them out of faithfulness to his own character. Would you, brothers and sisters, give anything for a God who did not defend his own faithfulness, his own character? Part of what makes God God is the fact that he judges. He must judge in order to be faithful to his own character, and if he does not do that, he is not a God worthy of worship. But the lies continue on into chapter 12. We find that God gives a couple of examples 
of lying people. Chapter 12, verse 1, Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And now he begins to give us the illustration of Jacob, whose name means supplanter, deceiver, liar, Fill in your synonym. That was Jacob. And he's the father of Judah. And God says, let me, let me talk to you about your lies uh, w- one more time. Let me, let, let me give you an example of how you've done this. You're just like your father, Jacob. You're liars. You are deceiving by lies, uh, establishing worthless alliances with the Assyrian rulers. Now, I want us to notice something as well. God uses Jacob as an example twice. The first time as a negative example. The second time as as a redeemed example. God's going to tell us the bad about Jacob, and then he's going to commend the good about Jacob. Jacob was a supplanter. He was a deceiver. He grabbed his brother's heel early on, showing his inner nature to supplant, to overcome, to deceive. And later in his life, Jacob would live a life that bore tragic consequences because of his lying. Jacob was always a man on the run, wasn't he? He lied. He connived. He deceived. He spent many years of his life running from who he really was. And God says, that's you, Israel. But Israel, I can't have anything to do with you. Because I am a God of truth. Psalm 51, 6. Behold, you, God, desire truth in the innermost being. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. God finds lying lips an abomination. Now, you don't find too many things that are an abomination in Scripture. God reserves that word abomination for some pretty serious stuff. And among them are lying lips. Then God gives the illustration not only of Jacob, but he gives the example, if you look down in the text, he gives the example of the Canaanite tradesmen. Those people who inhabited the land of Canaan who were not very nice people. And he says to them, you're just like the Canaanite tradesmen. You, 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 you know how to deceive. You know how to throw the scales. And that's what they were legendary for. They would weight the scales to, to come out in their advantage as they traded and as they went through these things. He says, you're, you're just like the Canaanites. You're a deceiver. You're liars. God says, I despise them. But it's everywhere. This is, this is who you are. This is what you've become. And then he says, now you also, I, one more thing against you. You have arrogance that breeds sin without limitation. You know, at one time, this is tragic, but at one time Ephraim was the most revered tribe in all of Israel. 
they wielded the greatest influence among the 12 tribes. She boasted, however, in her influence. Ephraim, chapter 13, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. Ephraim became proud as the leader of the group. But through Baal, he did wrong and died. And now they sin no more, and now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of the all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, Let us let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, God says this, they will be like the morning cloud, and like the dew which soon appears, like the chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from the chimney. They were so self important. They were so self-dependent that they became proud and that led to more and more sin. So then in verse 3 of chapter 13, God says, let me tell you what your existence is going to be like. Number one, it's going to be brief. Morning clouds, they come and boy, we wake up. Oh, it's going to be a nice cloudy day and the sun's not up long and the clouds are gone. And it's one of those hot, scorching West Texas days. You know what I'm saying? And as quick as that burns off, God says, Ephraim, your, your, your existence is going to be brief. Secondly, it's going to be easily extinguished by a brighter light. The dew which soon disappears, as soon as the sun comes up, it's burned off. And it's going to be, Ephraim, that your arrogant, sinful existence is going to be unmissed. It's going to be unmissed. Nobody's even going to know that you were gone. You know what? I think this is true of all of us, isn't it? When we consider and contemplate our own death, and we should, we ought to realize we're not going to live forever, and we need to be cognizant of that fact and not live a deceived life, but know that someday we will not exist. And I think there's something in all of us, isn't there, that we, we want to be remembered when we die, we, we hope our children remember us. We hope that our friends remember us. And God says to Ephraim, you're not even going to be missed. Who misses chaff? Nobody. Who misses the smoke coming out of the chimney? Nobody. That's why there's a chimney to get the smoke out of the way. You, you won't even be missed, Ephraim. This past week, I came out to church one afternoon for something. I drove past the cemetery. And there was a funeral going on. And there was one car, probably three people, attending the funeral. And I thought, what a, what a sad way to go. Nobody really knows. Nobody really cares. Probably the people paying the bill were the only ones there. God says to Ephraim, because of your arrogance, because of your sin, that's how it will be with you. In, in verse 6 of chapter 13, we see that their arrogance wrought another spiritual problem. 
they had spiritual amnesia. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. Now listen, again, Israel apostatizing in the context of blessing. They had their pasture. They became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. When things are easy and things are good, it's easy to forget God. And that's what Israel did in the midst of all their blessing. They just forgot God because the blessings were greater than God. Verses 12 through 13 showed the extent of their pride. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. Now listen to this. This is interesting. The Hebrew language is so colorful here. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. The Hebrew word literally pictures a child who refuses to leave the birth canal. It's the proverbial cat trying to be placed into the bucket for a bath. No. And they spread their arms and they spread their legs and I refuse to come out. And God says that's what Israel is like. They're like a stubborn child who won't leave the birth canal in their unwise condition. Why? What awaits outside the birth canal? New life. And God says of Israel, Oh Israel, I have life for you. I have a new life for you. I have a new covenant with you. But you refuse to leave the womb like an unwise son. You just want to stay in there. Because you're arrogant. Because you're comfortable and because you've forgotten. That's why, brothers and sisters, in the law, one of the most repeated words in the law, if you did a word search and you could map it out uh, statistically by where this word occurs, the law uses the word remember an awful lot. The first five books, God says repeatedly, remember, 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 remember. In the Psalms, God says, remember, 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 remember. Because you're going to a place of blessing. And once you get there, you will be tempted to become proud, thinking you did it. You will become comfortable, thinking this is the greatest thing in the world. When I am the greatest thing in the world, therefore, remember me. God says, oh, the stench of your sin. This overwhelming sin. But then... Secondly, this morning, I want you to understand this as we're concluding the book. That overwhelming sin cannot thwart the faithfulness of God. No matter how great Israel's sin was or would become, you cannot thwart the faithfulness of God, period. No matter how sinful we are, no matter how sinful we have been, we cannot overrule or undo the faithfulness of God. That is who He is. Now I want you to do me a favor. Turn back to chapter 11. So we came through and we we surveyed their sin. We surveyed the overwhelming sin. And now we want to go back and survey, in closing this up, the overwhelming faithfulness of God. To understand Hosea's sermon, 
is to understand that Hosea came to preach a message on the majesty of God to a sinning and straying people. Now that sounds odd. If you go talk to somebody about Hosea, say, so what was Hosea's sermon about? Uh, judgment. Man, it's going to be depressing. Hosea's sermon is really about the majesties of God's faithfulness. About his covenant love to straying and sinful people. Listen. Listen, brothers and sisters. I fear that we could fall into this trap. We, meaning colonial Bible church, meaning me, meaning you. And we must be on guard against it. Hosea was not calling the nation of Israel to moralism. He wasn't simply saying, clean up your act. Knock off with the spiritual and physical adultery. Come on, guys, you're better than that. He wasn't preaching that. Nor was he simply preaching repentance for the sake of repenting. Okay, guys, now listen, your tradition, your history says that you worship Yahweh. So you better repent and go back to worshiping Yahweh because that's what Granny and Grandpa did. He didn't preach that way. He didn't preach repentance, a turning and returning for repentance sake. He preached calling them back to a faithful God who was just and would punish sin, but who was good and who would also forgive sin. Repent. Turn away from the Baals and return to a God who is just, faithful, and good. The point of Hosea, quite frankly, is God. He wanted the people who lived with him to see God as he was. And so, This morning, I want to close by helping us to see God for who he really is. Join me. Chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Yet it is I, God says, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. When this pericope opens, God speaks of Israel in the most tender, familial sense. They are my son, he says. I call them son. I don't call anybody but two little boys in this room son. And I have a special love for them. And God says, that's how I am with Israel. They are the young child that he loved. The one he birthed, the picture is, out of Israel. He birthed them out of slavery and into new life. How do fathers love their children? They love their children in a unique way. I love my children because... They were birthed out of my initiative. My choice to create and love them. That's how God loves Israel. I love them because my children are completely dependent on me for their care. God created Israel to be like that. 
even though they weren't always aware of it, even though my boys aren't always aware of it, if they didn't have mommy and daddy, they would perish. The love of God for his children is unconditional and unceasing. I will always love my boys no matter what. Sometimes that's love that comes in exuberant blessing. Sometimes it's love that comes through chastening, but it is always love. That's how God loves. And the language of God tells us that. The real headline of Israel's history in Egypt is that God is majestic and overall. That God has birthed them and they have a special place with him. And he goes to Pharaoh. Here's Moses' God's sermon, if you will, through Moses. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Here's what he says to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. Isn't that interesting? God's going to, to, to Pharaoh. He's making the case for Pharaoh to let the people go. And he doesn't say, this is my people. This is my nation. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, this is my son. There's a couple things. You can tick off a president of a country and he may send his army, but you tick off a mommy or a daddy for picking on your kids and you've got a war on your hands. And God says, listen, I'm coming as a father whose son is being mistreated by you. We're about to have words, Pharaoh. The gloves are fixing to come off. And I'm telling you right now, as their father, let them go. That's strong language. God chooses to come in the familial terms of father and son. And he says, so I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son and your firstborn. You picked on my child. I'm going to kill yours. You see, I'm their father. You don't mess with my children. They're more than a nation. They are children that I took the initiative to create, that I took the initiative to care for. And by the way, Pharaoh, I sent them down here to protect them from a famine to start with. It was you who got the big idea that you brought them down. And I'm not putting up with this anymore. We're, we're, it's come down to brass tacks. Let them go. Do you hear the love of God as a father for his son? God who is love. And now I want you to look at this text quickly. He says, I taught them to walk. One of a parent's proudest moments, the first steps. Your back's tired because you've been walking around for weeks like this. Trying to help them learn to walk. And that moment when they let go and they take that first step, there is a cataclysmic change in your life from then on. And what joy there is. And God says, I did that. For Israel, I held their hand and I welcomed them in and I taught them how to walk. And then they got out on their own. And what did they do when they were on their own? They stabbed me. Not only that, but I led them with cords of a man. Now, this is interesting. The Hebrew refers to a difference here between the chains that oxen were chained with, that animals were led with, those brutal, heavy, hard chains. 
And God says, I didn't lead Israel that way. I led them with cords of a man, with appropriate grace, appropriate cords that bind a man. These were not the harsh instruments of driving oxen to plow the field. These were things that were appropriate for children. And God said, that is how I led them. There's no doubt that God took them through some harsh circumstances from a human perspective, and we wouldn't have liked that situation either. We may even look at it now and say, that was a little harsh. But listen, God is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. And he leads them with accords appropriate to men to bring them out of their sin and back to himself. 2 Samuel twenty two thirty one. as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. That's what he was doing. He was leading his people with the cords appropriate to men back to himself. And look what he does. He removes the yoke from their jaws. I'm not a great horseman, but I know a little bit about horses. I have horses. And you've got different kind of bits that you can use. And some of them are just excessively aggressive. And they can hurt the horse's mouth. And you use that. Uh, some on, on horses that are a little unruly to get their attention. And then there are the, the, the hackamores. Then there are the, the other types that don't use a bit at all. Those horses that are so well trained that you can just touch them and they go and they do what they're supposed to do and they're compliant. And God says to Israel, they had one of those aggressive bits in their mouth and I came down and I took it out to lead them in love. I remove the harshness. He lifts the yoke and then he bends down and feeds them. He brings the food right up to where they are. And he feeds them out of his hand. He doesn't turn them out to pasture and say, go find your own food. No, God brings the food to them and say, here, look, I'm going to feed you. Here it is. Here it is. Come here. Christ is our yoke. He is. Just take my yoke upon you and learn me. How tender is Christ? How great is the affection and love of Christ for us? Infinitely so. Listen to God's tender and powerful emotion. Perhaps this is the most Emotive, powerful statement made by God in the entire book, verse 8 of chapter 11. Listen to God. Listen to what he says. Recounting the love for his children, their apostasy away from that love, their deserving of being cast off, and God cries out, How can I give you up, Ephraim? I should, but how could I do that? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? How can I do that? My heart, he says, is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. By the way, so you know who Adma and Zeboim are? Those are cities that perished along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, how can I do that to you? I, 
I did it to them, but they weren't my people. You're my people. How could I do that to you? And the answer we understand rhetorically is I can't. And I won't. Why? Because God's heart is turning over within us. We've been there so full of love so full at the same time of brokenness that it literally feels like your bowels are doing somersaults inside you. God says, that's how I feel about you. All of my compassions are kindled. Now that's something coming from God. What kind of compassionate is God? Infinite. He's got more compassion than we will ever know about and he says, Every one of my compassions is stirred up. That must be something. The God who can love like that does love like that. Despite all that they had done, he is stirred up. The reason why he finds it impossible to give them up, and this is key to the book, verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger as he did at Admah and Zeboim. I won't do what I did to them here. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Why? I am a God, I am God and not man. How's that? God's just like us. No, he's not. And you better thank God he's not. He is God and not man. What's the paradox here? The paradox is that God is faithful and men are not. And he is saying essentially, if I were a man, I would wipe you off the face of the earth, but I am God, I am faithful, I have a covenant with you, and I cannot give you up. Glory, hallelujah. God's greatness reigns. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God is faithful. Listen, the, the, the current context of evangelical Christianity tells you to worship God. He's not a human being. I mean, read the books. Listen to the music. God's just kind of a syrupy chum buddy, just like you. We better fall on our knees and praise God that he is not at all like us because look what men do. They lie and they're not faithful. God is none of those things. He is God. Totally different than his creation. He's holy. He's transcendent. He's above his creation. And yet he is in our midst. God who is so transcendent is also God who is imminent. He is in our midst, but that does not mean he is like us. In our character. He is holy and to be revered. Oh, praise God for his otherness. I am not man. He's a God of promise. I'm not going to destroy. I'm not going to do that. 
And there's a future promise for salvation here in verses 10 through, 10 through 12. They will walk after the Lord, he says, of Israel in their future. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the west. There is coming a day, God says, when the reconstituted people of God will roar like a lion and they will call the people of God back. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. God's going to do this. Because He's a God of promise. And He's a God of permanence as well. Chapter 13, verse 4. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior beside me. I've been a long time since Egypt, but God was still the same. So faithful to his promises. In chapter 13, verse 5, we read this. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God cared for his people in an infinite way, in an impossible situation. In wooing Israel, God reminds them that their greatest hour of need, he cared for them. You're a nomadic people. Nomadic people are not farmers. And God calls Israel out of Egypt. And he says, listen, we're going to do a little bit of wandering here through this place called the desert. Number one, you're not going to be any one place long enough to farm and reap. And number two, even if you were, the land won't grow it. So I'm going to teach you something really neat. You can depend on me for everything. Even in an impossible situation, I'm going to demonstrate that I am God. And you're going to have more than you ever dreamed of. So much so that you're going to have to get it fresh every morning because you're going to have it left over at night and it'll, it'll just go bad. So I want to teach you that every morning you can come out and get that manna. It's going to be fresh and new. It's just like my mercies. Israel, I want, I want to be your everything. I, I want to care for you in a place where it's impossible to be cared for. Can I ask you an honest question? Because I ask myself this question. Do we have too much for God to be everything to us? Right now in your life, do you have too much for God to be everything to you? Do we have too great a marriage that we say, man, our marriage is so great. I'm not even sure if I need God. I got a great spouse. Man, I've got great children. My children are my satisfaction. My children are my everything. Do you have too much of that for God to be everything? Do you have too many material things that, that we say, you know, I'm really not sure I have need of anything. Ah, revelation. We're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And God comes and says, unless you repent, unless you come back to me, I'm going to take it all away. So that you're going to understand I am it. Everything else should be stripped away. Have other things become our everything? Only God can be our everything. Israel forgot this. But then I want you to see one final thing. That's not the final thing in my notes, just so you know, but it's the final thing I'll share this morning. and Perhaps I can put the rest of it up on, a, on the church blog for you to read. But I want you to notice lastly this morning that God is a warring God 
against sin for life. Let me say that again. God is a warring God. Or you could say it this way. God is a warrior God against sin for the purpose of life. Now I want you to look in verses 7 and 8. God says, because Israel has sinned. Okay? Context. Israel's in sin, right? So I am going to be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie and wait by the wayside, and I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. That's a bad mama bear. And I will tear open their chest. I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. God says, that is how my wrath against their sin is going to come out. I'm going to be like an uncaged wild animal shredding them. I'm going to open them up. I'm going to disembowel the sin. And this is, I'm, I'm serious about this, y'all. I'm going, to, I'm going to take care of this problem because I'm a warlike God. Now listen, we live in a very feminized, passive idea of Christianity. Do you know the Old Testament pictures God as a warrior? He is strong. He is mighty. And Hosea said, you've got this mighty God. He's the Lord of hosts. Chapter 12, verse 5, that's his name. And he's going to come after sin. And he's going to pounce on sin. And he's going to take sin out. And he is going to appear as if he is against you for a period of time. But now, brothers and sisters, would you go down to verse 14? And now he says to Israel, having dealt with their sin, now remember what is God? He is a warrior God against sin for the purpose of life. And now look what he says in verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Okay, now listen. O death, where are your thorns? O hell, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. You know what God's doing? God has now turned his warrior-like spirit away from their sin, and he has turned his warrior spirit against death. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, quotes Hosea. And he says, this Jesus who has been crucified, who is now risen again, has taken on death, and he's taken on hell, and he has turned all the vengeance that he formerly had against you into vengeance against the death that tried to kill you. And Paul says, O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For death was swallowed up in victory. God in His grace once turned His wrath on His Son, His only Son, because of our sin, and having been satisfied by the death of Jesus, now turns His wrath on death and hell itself for the sake of His God does war. 
And look what he says to death. Compassion will be hidden from my sight. I am coming all out. There will be no compassion on you, death. There will be none. I am coming to eliminate you. What a gracious and glorious God. We go back to 9 and 10. Birthing that unwise son. For outside the womb lays a whole new creation, a new life. And God sums it up. He sums it up because remember Jacob. He says on the one hand, Jacob was a liar whose sin I was against. Jacob, the repentant Jacob, is the man I am now for, pursuing death, as it were, against that for him so that he might live. So be like Jacob, not as a liar, but as one who pursues God. Pursue God like Jacob did that night as he wrestled. Verse 4 of chapter 12. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel and and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his name. Be like Jacob. Pursue God. Take care that you observe God. Notice what he goes on to say. Observe God. Observe the things of God, loving kindness, loyalty to God, justice before God, and then wait continually for God. Jacob waited that night for God to bless him. As he he pursued God, he waited, he wrestled, he would not let him go. Israel was to wait for God. Brothers and sisters, we are to pursue God as the greatest above all things, as our everything. We are to honor God in His character. And we are to wait for God. And to find our satisfaction in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. May we see the pattern of overwhelming sin and yet a God who triumphs over it. A God whose warrior spirit that was once poured out against sin, both in the life of Israel and ultimately in Christ on the cross, that same passion, that same wrath has now been switched because Christ is worthy and been found accepted in your sight, Father. It's now turned against our death. And there is no death for those who are found by faith in your Son. Thank you for that. May we live worthy of it. May it change us and make us worthy. God, may you be everything to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.